You are listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. This is Everyday City, a show by me, Meg Harrod, about decoding urban planning and policy and about inspiring civic engagement to shape the city that you want to live in. Today's a special two-part episode called The Roots and Shoots of Canada's Housing Crisis. You are listening to part one, which asks the questions... Why are we in a housing crisis in Canada, and how did we get here? Part two, which I hope to hook you into listening to, will ask, how do we get out of this crisis? So, the housing crisis. You can't escape it, whether you are living at first hand with the struggle to find and afford or retain housing, or maybe you are an investor or owner and benefiting massively. The housing crisis impacts us all. I'm going to be joined today by two phenomenal guests that will help me explain the housing crisis. The goal of today's show is really to go backwards, to understand how we got here so that we can understand how we can move forwards into solutions. The journey back in time is fraught with politics, booms and busts, recessions, desperate acts, and corporate evils. The housing crisis in Canada is no bedtime story. So where do I begin our saga? I've actually been asking myself this for weeks. You'll hear people say, oh, it's a 30-year-old crisis dating back to the 90s, or, oh, it began post-2008 economic recession. I'll be honest. That's sort of the time frame I had in mind when I was thinking through doing this show. That was until I saw a post on Instagram by an old friend of mine, the incredible Justin Weeb. Justin is Métis from Saskatchewan and joining us today. Welcome, Justin, to CFRC. Thanks for having me, Meg. So, Justin, I'll start with talking about your Instagram post. So a couple weeks ago, I was uh, scrolling Instagram and I saw a photo of of a lovely winter scene, uh, a house on a frozen and very snowy Saskatchewan lake. But underneath your post, you had a really powerful hashtag, which said hashtag bought the land back. And my question for you is, first, what do you mean by that? And also, what does that feel like for you? Yeah, no, I mean, it was a bit of a you know, cheeky sort of hashtag, uh, but it, it really stems, you know, for, for folks who have been aware, there's, you know, in, in recent years, particularly, you know, a, a heightened conversation about um, the concept of land back. And, you know, it's a continuation of, of, of activism and work that, you know, Indigenous people have been fighting for, you know, since the first sort of settlers arrived. Um, in these territories, fighting to uh, maintain and, and continue to be able to access and utilize it with with our lands and, and with our territories and, you know, the plants, the animals, all those things that, that occupy uh, our territories alongside of us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in recent, in more recent times, like the, the hashtag land back has, has gotten a lot more play and, and there's a lot more 
you know, young people in particular, but but folks who are who are really calling for the return of like return of lands to indigenous people um, to make decisions about to continue our role as, as stewards of of the lands and the resources, and to be able to to benefit from those lands in, in ways that you know our communities define. And so, you know, for me, <laughs> it you know the, the idea of having to to buy the land back, you know, is is um, it's, it's funny, I mean, you know, if, yeah. if I imagine, you know, uh, talking to some of my ancestors about the idea of, of purchasing something back that was, that was inherently ours, I'm sure they would, they would be confused and they would, they would love. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at the same, at the same time, for me, like what it represents is, uh, is, is a, is a, my ability to have a deep, deep connection to a particular place. Um, you know, and. And to be able to, to retain that over time and to be able to sort of share that connection to place with other people um, and to be able to sort of yeah, have a space that, you know, I, I, I and you know, my family and others um, can utilize in the, in the ways that we that we uh, feel is appropriate. Uh, you know, and, and <laughs> the idea of having to buy the land back and, you know, at an individual level is, is, is less than ideal, you know, I know for... Yeah. For many Indigenous people and communities, like we're, we're we're fighting these fights every day, um, you know whether it's land defenders who are who are fighting for you know to stop resource extraction in Indigenous lands, or it's you know uh, First Nations who are uh, securing sort of funds or land because of failure of governments to uphold treaties, or or for Crown people, you know the Métis Nation here in Saskatchewan has been you know fighting for recognition of our rights um, to land uh, for for generations, and so we're st- and we're still not there. Yeah. Um, so in, in light of, of, of not seeing the, 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 the radical shift of, uh, of control of land and resources to indigenous people, um, and being in a fortunate place where, you know, I've, I have privileges, I've benefited in, in many ways from, you know, education, employment opportunities that have allowed me to access um, enough funds and enough sort of wealth to be able to, to, be able to do this. Like, this is a, a fortunate position that I'm in that many others who I, who I know would, would love to, to have a plot of land mm-hmm. that they can utilize and harvest from and um, in the ways that they want to do you know, in our current, uh, our current society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so true. So yeah. what, are your, what are your plans for the, for the land? Um, I mean, mostly to mostly just live. Uh, I don't have huge plans. I mean, there's, you know, a, a big shop here. Uh, a nice house. I mean, I uh, I like talking big game, and like you know, for folks who know me and, and see me, like I, I look the I look the part in terms of like a guy who who might know how to live in the woods. You know, I grew up in I grew up I grew up in the city. You know, yeah. and so um, part of it part of this for me too is is a is a reconnection to place and, and a you know building of new skills. So some of my biggest goals while I'm here spending time is like you know, learn how to live in, in better relationships to the land and learn about the plants and, you know, the animals that are here and, um, you know, how to live in, in relationship with those things and, you know, probably fail a lot along the way. Like, I uh, I bought a, a John Deere lawn tractor yesterday to cut the grass. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know what, like, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere. I don't know a lot of people. There's not a lot of people out here. And I don't know here. Um, and so I didn't have a way to get the lawn tractor off the back of my truck. So I had to make something up. I had some <laughs> logs laying around. I shimmied that on the back of the truck. And you know what? Like, 
halfway through, I was scared the truck was gonna fall on me, but that was, it, for me, it's about like learning and failing and, uh, you know, trying things that, uh, you know, I might not otherwise have been able to. So there's a huge garden here, I'm gonna, you know, uh, start to grow plants and uh, vegetables a lot more, and, you know, there's roots and Saskatoon berries and poplar here mm. as well, so, yeah, I'm looking about learning about all those things and, and how to live um, in yeah. closer relationship to the land again. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. And yeah, I'm sure you'll have lots of lots of hiccups, but also amazing learnings along the way. I look I look forward to, to hearing the stories, Justin. <laughs> yeah. um, I have one sort of big question for you. In your mind, how far back do we need to really truly go to address the roots of the of our housing crisis in Canada and to truly inform housing policy that will make a difference for people? Well, I mean, on, on one level, like, I think we have to go back to the to the beginning of the of the relationship between, um, you know, Indigenous people and, and, uh, and settlers and, you know, yeah. explorers and newcomers um, to this territory. That's the beginning, in my opinion, of the you know, housing, uh, homelessness, and, and, you know, these sorts of ideas, the crisis that we're experiencing. Yeah. There was fundamentally a, a conflict in view about um, what it means to live in a particular place, need to, to live uh, in a particular place. And so, you know, when the first came here, Indigenous people's approach was one of, of welcoming and one of ensuring other people's survival. So we opened our doors. We we shared the knowledge that we had. We we welcomed people here and, mm-hmm. and did what we could do uh, to ensure that they um, could sustain themselves and could survive. Because this was an entirely new climate, an entirely new world uh, for folks who came here, and they frankly did not know how to live, and they wouldn't have survived without um, the support of Indigenous people. And so there was a, for us, it was a place of welcoming people into a relationship uh, and one of survival here. Yeah. But that quickly shifted in the colonial sort of project, um, you know, underpinning all of this is the theft of land and the theft of and the disconnection of, of indigenous people from their territories. And so for me, there, you know, there's, there's a, you know, activists and folks who talk about this, you know, in the indigenous context is one thing, mm-hmm. but home is about so much more than just a house. Right, home is about connection to place. It's about connection to community and to people. Um, it's about being in relationship with the place. I, and so, it's for me that that's part of the beginning of this crisis. Is we 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 understand our relationship to um, where we live mm-hmm. in a way that is, is very different than how um, how how it was before. Uh, and so, I think that's part of it, right? Like when I when I think about. Um, you know, we know that we, you know, we know the statistics. We know the reality. You know, yeah. People are, are overwhelmingly, you know, and disproportionately experience housing crisis, experience housing crisis, experience homelessness. Yeah. Um, but that's not something that we experienced before people came here. We knew how to live off of the land. We knew how to take care of. It. So until we we understand that and return to a way of looking at um, housing and home. As, as a collective responsibility, one that we all have for each other, not an individual one where it's about me having what I need and not really worrying about other people. Uh, until we shift that, um, that understanding, one of individual sort of 
self-preservation and you know you do what hard you buy a house and you're you know you're good um, yeah. to one of like you know we need to collectively take care of each other and make sure that we all have what we need to, to, to prosper and to survive for me that's the only way that will will address the, the housing crisis at its core you know we can come up with millions of different economic solutions we can invest in affordable housing all those things matter of course mm-hmm. but um until we actually rethink our relationship uh, to place and to home and to each, I think you know, I, I do think it will. The crisis will continue in, in different yeah. forms, and there will always be people who aren't, who don't have what they need to, to survive and to prosper um, in terms of housing. Yeah. Thanks so much, Justin. You find yourself traveling among northern Don't you never ever forget To the ones who live there She once was true A true love of inequity 
and created the scenario we find ourselves in today. So here we go. I'm starting our policy journey in the 1950s, the post-war boom. This was a defining time because lots was built, lots of money flowed, and we saw a big investment in social programs like education, public health insurance, pension plans, unemployment insurance, and of course, social housing. There was a belief in universality, meaning that everyone was entitled to basic standards of living. This is important because while our transformation in housing has a lot to do with policy and politics, it also has to do with a fundamental shift in our ethic of societal care. This is ideological. Over the next 30 years, from the 1960s to 1990s, almost 20,000 units of social housing was built every year in Canada. I start with this to share that there was a time when investment in social and affordable housing was something we did well in Canada. That was until 1993. This was the year that Brian Mulroney under the Progressive Conservatives ended all new federal funding for social or public housing construction. So why did Mulroney do this? Why did the shift occur after 30 years of building social housing in this country? It didn't happen overnight. There were a few things going on in the world leading up to this that I'm going to do my best to explain. The first was a shift happening worldwide. Margaret Thatcher was in power in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US. The world had seen economic turbulence and the oil crisis in the mid-70s, leading to deep economic recession in the 80s. Unemployment rates soared. In a simplified sense, the prevailing mentality to, mentality to address this was get-out-of-the-way government, reduce taxes, reduce regulations, let private capital shape our economy, and above all else, let's let the free market prevail, for it will prevail. We call this ideology today neoliberalism, and it's very much what we see dominate our politics and our economy now. So where does Canada fit into this picture? While we were not the leaders of this ideology, we were definitely adopters. Starting in 1975, lining up with the oil crisis and recession, our period of investment in social welfare, including social housing, began to wane. As an attempt to reduce our federal deficit, so attempts to get out of this recession, we saw cutting and clawing of expenditure really impacting our social welfare. And by that I mean the social programs and funds like housing and child and family and old age benefits. So what we saw was a few different things or different moves. Deindexation was a movement to change the structure of social benefits essentially so they wouldn't keep up with inflation and then would slowly and quietly erode in value. Tax reforms that really advantaged the wealthy and actually caused lower incomes to pay more. Privatization. We saw reliance on non-government sectors to do social good. We saw our federal social welfare department cut out entirely and just become the finance department, which seems quite symbolic. So by 1990, we were the second worst OECD nation in terms of provision of social benefit. And by 1993, here we are at total federal deinvestment in social housing. 
Moving on into the 90s, housing is now more of a provincial matter since there's no federal dollars. So we see variation in housing policy across the provinces. Here in Ontario, rent controls were removed. Mike Harris brought in the Ontario Vacancy Decontrol, which meant once a rental unit was turned over, the price dramatically increased. If you are a renter today, you are pretty familiar with this because we see it all the time. From here, we see changes moving into the 2000s. We see debt become instrumental in our housing landscape. This is largely in terms of home ownership, where we saw a huge transformation in the mortgage sector. Up until 2006, mortgages in Canada were controlled and very regulated. In 2006, reforms to the National Housing Act allowed new private competitors to enter Canada's mortgage market. We also saw huge government support to basically provide guarantees to these private companies to really prop up and push us into the marketization of housing. So more competition in the mortgage market enabled more risky lending and looser requirements around the money you needed to qualify for a mortgage. So what this resulted in was more people buying homes, was a rapid increase in real estate values. In addition, Canadians were taking on way more debt. So in the US, a version of this was called subprime mortgage lending, which I'm sure you heard of. In really simple terms, it means that a lot of people couldn't pay their mortgage. And this sparked the 2008 financial crisis, which of course was felt worldwide. In Canada, after the 2008 financial crisis, we really relied on housing to get us out of the crisis, which is a bit ironic since it's what created the crisis. But what this looked like was financial bailouts and Canadian investment in securitizing mortgages. Essentially, government buying back mortgages from banks as a means of bailing them out. So we propped up the value of real estate and actually initiated inflation, aka the housing bubble. Incurring more debt and investing in mortgages was encouraged and incentivized. The government lowered interest rates, providing opportunity for first-time homebuyers to enter the market and create rampant investment in general. So here we are with the foundations of our housing crisis laid out. Layers and layers of incremental changes through policy, mortgage lending, debt, investment, all colliding. We see housing become financial and fundamental to our economy. I'm going to turn it over now to our next guest to explain this concept of financialization of housing. Welcome, Dr. Martine August, an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo and an expert in housing. The financialization of housing is one of these topics that can seem really abstracted from the everyday lives of people. But one of the things I've been looking at in my research is trying to understand how it's really has a lot of like practical material importance in our lives. And so in terms of what does financialization mean in, uh, in uh, geography, scholars talk about how it refers to this shift towards a uh, shift in the global economy, economy towards a dominance of finance capital and a shift towards um, making money through investment rather than through making things. So through financial, speculation rather than through production, which sounds very 
like abstract and detached from regular life. Uh, but in terms of how it affects housing, I look at the financialization of rental housing in my research, apartment buildings. And how finance touches down there is this shift that's been happening in Canada in which uh, financial vehicles or financial firms have been acquiring apartment buildings as investment products. And so there's been this shift in Canada over the last 20 plus years where uh, financial firms have been acquiring apartments and then managing them in such a way that they will be more profitable for investors who invest in the financial vehicles that ultimately own these apartments. And so how this affects regular people is that they're living in these apartments that are now being managed to be profitable for financial investors. And the way that uh, the asset managers uh, or real estate investment trusts or private equity funds that are doing this on behalf of investors um, make them more profitable are really through a series of strategies that extract more value from the people living in those buildings or extract more value from the buildings through uh, efficiency upgrades and stuff like that. But where the money really comes from is, is from regular people's pockets. So if you're an investor and you're seeing returns coming to you every month because you invest in a real estate investment trust, that's because the people who live in the buildings owned by that trust are, are paying higher rents. You know, they're getting rent increase notices. They're getting notices for um, above guideline rent increases. They're getting, in some cases, pushed out of their buildings. And uh, the next person that moves in pays substantially more. Sometimes that build, uh, the building or the unit gets renovated in that in the meantime, and, um, and then the landlords can increase the rent even more. So in the case of multifamily rental housing, financialization touches down in very substantial material ways where it can lead to increased material hardship, economic impacts on people's lives because they're seeing rent increases, other cost increases, new fees, and so on. In some cases, they're being pushed out of their building and community altogether. And then at a broader scale, we're seeing this affect buildings in many neighborhoods, often contributing to patterns of gentrification and growing social and spatial inequality. What do you think caused this pivot towards the commodification, the financialization that we're seeing um, taking off so strongly? There's a couple of factors I think that come into play. I mean, in my research, I've looked a lot at the way that governments have stepped back from involvement in regulating housing and providing affordable social housing. So in the 80s and 90s, we started to see a retreat from state involvement in subsidizing affordable housing, in providing um, uh, social housing co-ops, nonprofit housing, public housing. A retreat for that began in the 80s in Canada. In the 90s, the federal government completely withdrew from social housing involvement and began a process of trying to uh, devolve responsibility for social housing to the provinces. And then in Ontario, the provincial government in the mid 90s further devolved this responsibility to the provinces, or excuse me, to the municipalities. And so we've seen this sort of retreat from the state in terms of uh, providing social housing. And so what this means is that when there's less and less affordable housing being provided by the state, there continues to be demand for affordable housing. Uh, it suddenly becomes very 
profitable for firms to try to like swoop in at that low end of the market rate um, housing and and capitalize on the fact that a lot of people need shelter and, and the government is no longer competing there. Also, there's been a, a kind of deregulation of uh, tenant protections. So there were changes to Ontario's uh, tenant, it's now called the Residential Tenancies Act uh, in, in the late 90s. Um, there were some major changes made. This is at the time of the Harris government with the Tenant Protection Act that introduced vacancy decontrol. And so what this means is that when a unit becomes vacant, uh, landlords can charge any amount to the next person that comes in. And so it, creates, it created this strong incentive to make units vacant, especially in areas where you have gentrification pressures that will allow landlords to raise rents substantially when somebody moves out. So if you have a person who's living in an apartment and they've lived there for a long time and they're paying low rents, and if that area starts to gentrify, there's a huge incentive for the landlord to remove that longtime tenant, maybe renovate the unit and bring in someone who will be paying substantially more. And so these types of policy changes uh, really contributed quite a bit to um, kickstarting this trend towards uh, financializing rental housing. This is the first part of the story, the history of the crisis and its deep, deep roots. We're going to hear the rest of my conversation with Martine in the next episode. I'll also be joined by a few other guests. Please listen to part two as we move from the roots of the crisis to the sheets, the impacts and the potential for change and for solutions. Thanks for listening today, and thanks to Justin and Martine. Follow me on Twitter at EverydayCityYGK, and tell me what you think. This is Everyday City, and you're listening to CFRC 101.9 house is a very, very, very fine house With two cats in the yard Life used to be so hard Now everything